You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Today's podcast is with Joe Sanok. He is the host of the popular The Practice of the Practice podcast, and he's the author of a new book. Uh, It's called Thursday is the New Friday, How to Work Fewer Hours, Make More Money, and Spend Time Doing What You Want. Make sure you stay for a really powerful yes and story at the end. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Joe Sanak, welcome to the show. Kelly, I am so excited to be hanging out with you today. I am too. And I want to start uh, this conversation with a story you tell late in the book. You actually introduce us to Ted Forrester, who is the Auto Technologies Operations Manager at Kalamazoo Valley Community College, which seems like an unlikely role in an unlikely space to be such an innovative hero. Can you tell us that story? Oh my gosh. I am so glad you're starting with Ted because Ted is one of my favorite stories of the entire book. Uh, So this HVAC instructor in Southwest Michigan. um, So I get a hold of him and I have this two hour Zoom call talking through how he reinvented this small town community college. And it was really, he was just observing how in the summertime there weren't students that were coming to campus on Fridays. So every Friday he would take his keys and go up onto the roof and take a picture uh, of the empty parking lot. And he did this all summer long. Just there was no board certification, no like, hey, Ted, go do this. He just took it upon himself. And then he goes to the board of directors and he presents, this is what it looks like on Fridays throughout KVCC. Uh, And then he runs the numbers on the air conditioning costs just for Fridays and cooling, you know, the entire campus on Fridays. And of course the board is like, well, what should we do about this, Ted? And he pulls a USB drive out of his pocket with a full presentation And he starts showing how if they switch to a four-day work week, how it's going to save millions of dollars. Uh, And so this guy, Ted, who's just a a blue-collar heating and cooling guy, uh, reinvents how KVCC does their summers. Um, And what happens is really unexpected. Not only do they save millions of dollars in AC costs, but staff are happier and they're more willing to stay in this type of job because you know who wants to give up a four-day work week in the summer in in Michigan? I mean, we, we wait through all this winter and then finally you get a beautiful summer. 
and then we also see that health outcomes were better. Uh, mm-hmm. Student outcomes were better because students could come in earlier or later in the day. Uh, and it just shows me how you know, so often we see these blockades around the four-day work week and people saying, how could this ever be implemented? What about this place? And Ted showed how in a very kind of typical work environment, I mean, community colleges don't really shift quick usually. He helped reinvent how their schedule was and they got great outcomes from it. So I think the reason the story is so great and why it comes late in the book is because what you're really setting up earlier is the fact that there's all these myths. Like we, we made up these things. We, we made up money. We made up the calendar. There's like, they're, they're not, but, but, but I think our brains think our, 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 our old lizard brains think that, no, this is the way it's always got to be. And you sort of set up uh, trying to debunk these myths one by one, starting with the fact that the five-day work week really didn't become the norm until Ford established his factories in like the 1920s, right? Yeah, 1926. And it was to okay. sell more cars. He, he wanted to sell more cars to an, his employees. He knew people weren't going to buy a car to get to work faster. So he said, if I give them the weekend off, then they can go recreate. They can see their family and friends. And they're going to want to do as much of that as they can. So it's literally just to sell more cars to his own employees in 1926, like less than 100 years ago. And then you have the Haymarket Square incident, which then le- leads to other changes. And really what you're talking about here is industrialists, uh, uh, or as you say, the industrialists. And, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, which is uh, that industrialist, industrialist mindset still operates in workspaces. It still operates in learning spaces. And science has proved over and over and over again that it's incompatible with the way we should be working and learning. hundred percent. You know, I mean, when I looked back at how people lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, um, the rebuilding of Chicago after the fires, all these people move from Europe for a better life. And they find that their life is actually worse. They're working 10 to 14 hour days, six to seven days a week. And and so you look at that, it's a farmer's schedule, but you're not a farmer. You know, you're, you're just working all the time. Um, And then, you know, Henry Ford and a a lot of other industrialists come in and they say, here's a 40 hour work week. That was necessary at the time. That was a step forward for humans and for humanity and for business, but we've outgrown that. And I think the pandemic definitely showed us that we don't have to keep working the way we think that we have had to keep working, uh, but there's all these leftovers. Uh, you know, we see right now you know, the great resignation and people are saying, why are people resigning? Because you have a boss that's thinking like an industrialist and saying, come back to the office, sit here for 40 hours, even though you know you can get this whole job done in 25 hours. Yeah. And, and, you know, you talk about this with people and everyone agrees, but no one does anything about it. And I guess that's, that's the point of Ted is this is finally someone who did something about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the challenge because if you're more on the entrepreneurial side, uh, the big challenge is you have so many ideas and so many things you want to implement and you usually enjoy your business. Uh, so you have to learn how to rein that in. So you're not working all the time when you're you know, playing with your kids. Uh, but then on the other side, the people that have your typical jobs, how do you approach your boss and say, hey, let's switch to a four-day work week? Uh, a lot of people just don't have the blueprint to even think through how they would have that conversation. You say in the book, quote, to change, we must know where we are starting. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah. Uh, so when we look at ourselves or we look at ourselves in humanity, if we don't know our history of how we got here, it's very difficult to understand where we're headed because the this is how we do it of 1926, that it was working 10 to 14 hours a day. 
But then Henry Ford changed that. So now we have the, this is how we do it of the 40 hour work week. And so we're creating the quote, this is how we do it of the future. So if we don't understand what has happened. So for example, how do we have even a seven day week? And you go back 4,000 years and the Babylonians just made it up. You know, they looked up and they saw the sun and the moon and Mercury, Venus. They looked down and they saw the earth, Mars and Jupiter. And they said, all right, there's seven major celestial things that we can count. Why don't we have a seven-day week? You know, the Romans had a 10-day week. The Egyptians had an eight-day week. To me, mm. it's important to look backward and say, okay, we made up the seven-day week. There's nothing in nature that even points to the seven-day week. Uh, it makes sense that the earth goes around the sun and that takes a year. It makes sense that the earth rotates for a day and that's a day. But we could just as easily have a five-day week and have 73 of those in a year. And so if we just start with that, or we start with the deconstruction of the 40-hour work week, we start to say these things that we think are unchangeable. Actually, at some point, people that were power brokers said, hey, we can have a seven-day week. We can have a five-day week. We can have an eight-day week. There's been all sorts of manifestations. So then these things start to crumble where it then gives us power now to say, what are we going to do as the post-pandemic generation? We have a limited amount of time right now as a humanity to say, we don't want to go back to how the industrialists taught us. We can actually create something that's better for our health, better for our families, better for our social relationships, and also still better with business. So that's on a macro level, which is absolutely true. It's true also on a micro level, right? So if, if, if I need to change, I need to understand what were my models, which is probably my parents as a kid, and where was I brought up and my privilege? I think both things are important, correct? Oh, absolutely. And that's why, even though we talk macro at the beginning of the book, deconstructing time itself, um, I always go back to that it's individual decision makers that are reading this book, that are implementing it, uh, that it's that one boss, it's that one Ted, it's that one individual that says, no, we can change things here. And so we actually start with your internal world and say, what's going on inside? Because too often what we see is there's these productivity books and it gives you the five steps and it's a prescription that the industrialists say, do this or you're out. Uh, but if you haven't done that inner work, like how are you expected to actually be more productive and do the right kind of work? Or on the other side, we have all these woo-woo books that say, you know, do a vision board, manifest it to the universe, but don't do anything and hope that you get that trip to Hawaii. And, and actually what we're seeing is the sh biggest shift in regards to books is that it's going from a prescription model to more of a menu model where, uh, you know, a book like mine or a lot of others that are coming out say, I think you're a smart person as a reader. I think you're a smart person as a listener to this podcast. I'm going to teach you how to think and then how to adapt and evolve and change. And then we see that the businesses that are able to do that evolutionary model instead of the uh, old model of the industrialists, those are the ones that are retaining people and adjusting and adapting over time instead of just being locked in like a machine that the industrialists gave us. Yeah. I mean, and you say in the book, we're not machines. And, and, and the great news about that is in the future of work that we're entering, where the machines are going to be doing a lot of our work, it frees us up to do our more human stuff, which is storytelling and divergent thinking and problem solving. And that's the fun stuff too. Oh yeah. And it's like, we know this intuitively. We know that our best work doesn't come when we're stressed out and maxed out. I mean, that's yeah. why, you know, in improv, you do warm up games before you're going to like go out onto stage. You, you do all these things to get your juices flowing. Uh, we know this intuitively. Like, when do you have your best ideas? It's when you're in the shower. It's when you're out for a hike or a walk, or you're on a drive and you turn off the radio and maybe you're not stuck in traffic. Uh, when our brains are rested, when our brains are optimized, when we're doing things that allow us to just kind of rest into life, 
that's when we have the biggest aha moments, the biggest moments of discovery, the biggest moments of creativity, not when we're stressed out and maxed out and bringing that into the business. So you said the word, uh, and your, your publicist, uh, who is someone I've worked with for ages, did not mention this to me, and she was being sneaky. You're in an improv troupe. Yeah, yeah. I'm in uh, Tilt Think Improv here up in Northern Michigan in Traverse City, and uh, it's a wonderful group of people that we meet every single Wednesday. Uh, so I, in my notes, I have uh, different sections, and sometimes it's a chapter title, and sometimes it's a thing, and so the title of this section of notes is Curiosity. Um, because I really think there's some interesting things about improv and there's some interesting things about comedy that get touched on in, inside this. So I wanted to kind of dig in. Um, you talk about incongruent resolution um, and th- there's talk, talk to us about what you mean when you talk about that. And then I've got a, a thought I want to share with you. Yeah, well, I think incongruent resolution is where we resolve things in our brains. So I'm trained as a psychologist and we resolve it. Um, when it's incongruent with the world outside. And, and so oftentimes what we do is we enter a situation and we just want to move through the situation. We, we don't actually look to create congruency in our lives. And so what can often happen is we settle. And so why do we settle? We settle because we don't want the discomfort uh, of the incongruency that's inside of our brains. And so when we do that, we're not actually challenging or pushing back in the way um, that our brains want. Our brains actually want to have congruency. It wants to be able to look out and say, I understand this world. Um, But the truth is there's so much in life that is incongruent. And so we always have this battle where we're going back and forth between the congruency that our brain desires and the natural incongruency that's out in the world. And living in that tension um, actually allows us to be able to be more curious and and to say, wait a second, um, the world I've created in my head is very different than the world that I'm seeing right now. What is happening here? Um, And that's where people that have lost that curiosity, they just plow through it. They come up with some some way that they're going to explain it away. They don't actually dig into why there's, there's that incongruency within their brains. And so effective leaders are ones they can kind of live in that space between the incongruency and the exploration that comes out of that. Uh, did you know that that's a theory of comedy as well? <laughs> I did not. Yeah, I'm pretty right, new so to improv. I'm only a few years in. And so like so no, uh, this, I took one is... second city uh, thing when you guys came up to Traverse City. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm still learning. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and, and we, they're, they're not interchangeable comedy and improv, but they're, but they're connected. So I just wrote it down. So I'll read it uh, that the incongruity theory states that humor is perceived at the moment of realizing, or the, a moment of realization of incongruity between a concept involved in a certain situation and the real objects thought to be in some relation to the concept. So oh. it's insight, it's surprise. And then you, you do this Isaac Asimov quote, which I didn't know, which I love, which is the most exciting phrase to hear in science. The one that heralds discoveries is not Eureka, but that's funny. Yeah. That's, that's, and that's the illustration of it, right? Yeah. I mean, I have a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old, uh, two daughters. And um, so we often do improv games just around the house. And uh, I'll just say to them, like, how do you make this weird? And, and so I mean, it's what you're talking about. Like, how do we flip this? How do we look at it from a different angle? How do we put someone in a situation that you would never expect them to be in? And to see how natural a seven and 10-year-old can do that. I mean, when they're playing with, with their dolls or their toys, like they're just doing improv yeah. uh, and they don't even realize it. But at some point, we as adults start to get self-conscious and we pull back on that. We worry about what other people think. Um, But the effective leaders are the ones that stay curious, that are able to kind of ask those questions and and dive into that incongruency. Yeah. You've got to, Colbert talks about learning to love the bomb. And it's like, (laughs) you've got to become comfortable with that discomfort. And there's all kinds of exciting stuff inside those worlds. But 
we get it drummed out of us in school and, and then we get it drummed out of us in, in work. I mean, there's literally uh, Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdonis who wrote humor seriously talk about this, about they call it the, the, and there's data around it. It's called the humor cliff that we literally stop laughing as much of a, as adults. And I imagine, did you discover improv during the pandemic? Actually, it was pre-pandemic. So okay. uh, I was doing it um, for about a year and a half before the pandemic. Um, and really, my friend Pete invited me and Lisa. I had met her a few times. She had taught improv throughout Europe. Um, yeah. And I just found that it it was like this escape for me where I went back to, it felt like a coming home where, yeah. oh my well, gosh, I'm just again. playing. Yeah, I'm laughing so hard. And, you know, um, just even right now with 2021 being, you know, such a you know difficult year for our family um, to really just have every single week, I get to go to Tilt Think and hang out with these people. And I mean, there's nothing like making other people doing improv laugh. Like yeah. it's, it's fun to have a show and do all that, but to make other people that you think are so smart laugh, it's just you can't not be fully present. You have to be there. Um, And how often as adults do we have an hour and a half that we are just fully in flow state and just able to dive in and forget about our problems. Uh, I mean, it's, it's some of the best therapy that I've had. I mean, my therapist who I mentioned in the book, uh, he's a good therapist too. Uh, But improv as well is just such a great, just escape from humanity for a few minutes. Yeah. You can tell why people self-medicate with improv. It's like, you know, I I don't think, I, the, a line I used to always say is no one got into comedy because they're well-adjusted. And while I think that is true, I also think that's largely true of all humans. So, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. These spaces. So you also talk about the, the, the need uh, of this outsider approach. Um, and you tell a personal story uh, that has to do with your hair. Uh, can you tell us that? <laughs> I love that you're asking me questions that you can't hear on any other podcast. I just love that you, you've done your research. It's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. So when I was uh, 20 years old, um, I had just applied to work at this runaway shelter. And uh, you know, I was majoring in psychology. I thought, well, this will look good on my resume. Also, a friend of mine worked there uh, and said, it's great. You get to take these at-risk kids and go do fun things with them and be a positive influence in their lives. And I thought, well, that'd be awesome. So I applied and I didn't hear and I didn't hear and I didn't hear. And um, I, throughout college, would dye my hair different colors, uh, but I had never done uh, cheetah print hair. And so I thought, you know, now is the time. And so I dyed my whole hair blonde. Uh, and then I took a Q-tip and did little black kind of half circles and got really precise where I did even brown on the inside. And so I did great job with this kind of cheap, poor man's like hairstyle uh, in, in the, the bathroom of my apartment. Literally the next day, I get a phone call for an interview. (laughs) And and so uh, I go to this interview and I still remember uh, this one guy, JD, who he was about the tightest laced um, Catholic family services guy that you could ever have. Uh, He, throughout the entire interview, um, was looking at the top of my head. And it was interesting because I I got a sense of, you know, when women say, hey, my eyes are up here. uh, I got a little microcosm of that with the privilege that I've had where I haven't had that. And, you know, it's like, hey, my eyes are down here. Stop looking at my hair. But what happened is I ended up getting the job at this runaway shelter. And they said one of the biggest selling points was that I had this like cheetah print, leopard print hair. Uh, And so it's interesting how often we feel like we need to be in the box. We need to fit a mold in order to get what we want. 
But the reality is, is the research that's emerging is actually showing us that outsiders statistically have more influence than the insiders and and more than they should have statistically. And there's research study after research study that shows this um, and that effective leaders are able to maintain or try to maintain that outsider perspective. So even finding ways for myself to make myself feel awkward or, um, you know, if I'm out with friends to walk up to a table of total strangers and start a conversation that teaches me how to live in that outsider perspective, how to be able to grow and, and sit with that discomfort compared to just going with, you know, that insider world that maybe feels more comfortable for me. There's a great line in the book where you say, quote, the goal is to discover how we are an outsider, not if we are an outsider. We, th- that's crucial because it's like we are just depending on the context, we are all outsiders at some point. And the, the I think, and this is a great thing about improv because it helps you teach the skill of recognition in terms of that when, when there's a status shift or something's changed in a scene and you're forced to play a character you didn't think you were going to uh, play. And that happens all the time. So you just become used to it. But I think other people, and we just interviewed uh, Jay Van Bavel about social identity, about identities and our identities are social, which means they're not static. They change. Yet, I think we probably all at a certain point felt like, oh no, I this I am who I, there's a, a, a one me. There's not one me. No, not at all. And, and I think that what's interesting is when we're able to dive into that outsider status, um, it becomes a superpower for us. So yeah. you know, it, it can be your own personal trauma, the things that you've gone through. It can be um, just who you are naturally. When you start to you know, kind of add those layers. So for example, like I'm a single dad with two daughters and then I'm also a podcaster. And then I also love art and finding all these little things that I'm into. All of a sudden you have a very unique person that's hard to compete with, whether it's in the business world or you know, friendship world that I'm going to be the kind of person that it's hard to replace if I really start to own my outsider status. Uh, can you tell us what slowdown school is? Oh man, slowdown school. I just, this is one of my favorite events that we put on. So entrepreneurs from all over the country fly into Northern Michigan, into our little airport here. Uh, I pick them up in a big yellow school bus. Uh, I mean, I don't actually pick them up. I hire a bus driver <laughs> to pick them. So we, we pick them up in a, a big yellow school bus and drive out to Lake Michigan and have this campus right on Lake Michigan. It has a river that goes through it. And, and most entrepreneurs are people that are high achievers. They want to get things done. If they go to a conference, they show up, uh, they want to get going right away. But we actually know that the research says that if you start sprinting when you're burned out and stressed out, you're going to do worse work than if you actually relax a little bit. So we actually live this out. And for the first two days, uh, they turn off their phones except to take pictures. We go for hikes every single day at some beautiful spots overlooking Lake Michigan. I bring in massage therapists and yoga teachers. Uh, We skip stones on the beach and play spike ball and just hang out. Um, And the first day, it's interesting because you know we have uh, an executive chef that makes all sorts of delicious food for us and partners with farmers. And people are like, "What am I doing here?" Like, I, you know, I've listened to Joe Sanok's podcast for a while. And there's all these top entrepreneurs. I want to network and talk, and to just be like, "No, let's take a breath and just be human together for a little bit." Let's skip stones and and play like kids and just relax. Um, one year we did improv on the beach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to just allow people, I mean, I still remember this one guy, uh, Michael, who he did improv and he was really a quiet guy, uh, kind of timid, but he said to himself, 
this year, I want to push myself into situations that I have no business pushing myself into. Mm -hmm. And I still remember this hilarious scene he did on the beach when we were just doing some improv. So that year we had improv as part of it. Um, So just allowing ourselves to play and have fun for the first two days. And then on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday morning of that week, we run full tilt towards their business. So we teach them about sprint types. We teach them about how do you get more done in a shorter period of time? How do you use neuroscience to actually make your environment do what you want for your brain. Uh, And so that same guy, Michael, uh, I remember he had been in a mastermind group where we were meeting twice a month for for months online beforehand. And he's actually in the Chicagoland area, uh, has a great couples therapy practice there. And over and over, he would show up for his hot seat and he knew he needed to write a book about couples therapy, kind of outlining his approach. And he just kept getting sucked into the kind of daily tasks uh, of running his practice. It wasn't bad. It wasn't that he didn't want to write the book, but it just kept sucking him back in. So his first sprint, uh, he said, I'm going to work on my book and outlining it. And so I encourage them to figure out in 20 minutes, what can you get done? That's a big step forward in regards to whatever business goal you have. So Michael goes off to do this. And 20 minutes later, he comes back with nine chapters outlined mm-hmm. with five points under every single chapter. He basically wrote the book and now just has to fill it in. Um, and so to just see what happens when you unlock the brain, when you actually slow down first and then use the neuroscience to help you get more done, uh, it's just so fun to see uh, all the different businesses or ideas that have launched out of slowdown school uh, because it, it's a chance to step back, but then it becomes a springboard to say, well, why am I not doing this in my regular life? Like it's not slowdown school that's magic. It's that you had this amazing experience that then showed you a different way to, to work and a different way to live that's more in line with your brain and also then is more in line with maybe the outcomes you want out of your business. And this is what what is so magic about the second city formula for how we create because we the, the actors are all trained in improvisation. They use improvisation to generate an abundant amount of ideas, all yes and in the first like four weeks. But then the rest of the process is editing and refining and, and like and, the, and there's work and there's a bias for action. And then you re, and then you relax as well. I mean, it's like it, and it, it really follows the science of knowing that we're not meant to do these marathons. It's yeah. it's, it's it's the sprints and and the resting and they're all important. Um, you write in the book, uh, quote, the concept of moving on it is based on two factors that appear to be intention with one another, speed and accuracy. Uh, and I love it because it's that, te- that tension is actually what produces the good stuff. Absolutely. You know, I mean, when you think about that, that, on one side, you want accuracy and the other side, you want speed. Like there are times in life that you want accuracy. So if I have a surgeon and I'm yes. going under... She can take as long as she needs to cut me open and do whatever she needs to do. Like we need accuracy, but most of what we do, whether it's in the business world or the life world, speed is going to be more important than actual accuracy Uh, because so many people get paralyzed by perfection. um, And that's what the industrialist taught us. You know, you think about the typical undergrad or grad school, you've got a paper, you write it. That draft comes back to you. You go to the writing center over and over, and then you turn in that final paper and it's pass fail, or, you know, you get the grade. Um, It's not an iterative, iterative process where you're growing and changing and shaping, but in the business world, in life, in our relationships, how often do we have one shot at something? You know, there might be times that you need to be accurate. You know, when I was putting this book proposal together, when you're shopping it around, you pretty much got one shot. Um, you, you know, the agent is shopping it around. We want that to be good. We don't want flaws in it. But for most of life, if I do a blog post or I do a podcast, 
if I say something stupid, I can edit it out. I can undo it. I can pull it down. I can learn from it. So more times than not, if you're at 80%, like ship it, get it out there because you're going to learn so much more by going faster than you will by being perfect. Yeah. And that, and that's, and that's also uh, about co-creation and the idea of rapid prototyping and the, why that is such an important thing. If you can sort of safely get these, these ideas, these concepts in people's hands to play with, they can help you improve it. Um, and yeah, uh, you, you also talk about COVID times and you say, quote, that really this COVID time quote showed that we had the time we had just misappropriated it. And, and I think that that that's widely true. And I know we touched on it earlier that, you know, people are alarmed at, at this behavior. And I'm like, this is the behavior that finally makes sense. Yeah. That's what you're yeah. Alarmed. Yeah. I mean, I think that for a lot of us and, and definitely people that have privilege to have been in lockdown and been able to say, well, what do I want to do with my time? I want to learn how to make sourdough bread. I want to watch Tiger King. I want to spend time with my kids. Like what, what are those things that, that now, you know, right now being not in lockdown, who knows what the future may hold. Um, we don't ask ourselves enough. What do we want out of our time this coming weekend? What do I want out of this weekend? Um, and one thing that you know is a small step for a lot of people is to look at the future weekend and just say, what's one thing I can add and what's one thing I can subtract. So if I add one thing in, that's going to just give me more happiness. Like, what would that be? Maybe it's a book you've been intending to read to take a couple hours to read that or to go for a hike with your kids or um, to just do something of substance, you know, in the artistic realm of your brain. Uh, but then what's the thing that you can remove? You know, so many people, you know, maybe go get coffee with someone and they feel like trash afterwards. Cause that's a toxic friend. Like I give you permission to cancel that coffee date um, yeah. or maybe um, it's mowing your lawn or, you know, having your, having to go spend half a day getting groceries to remove one thing that adds that extra stress so that when you show up on Monday or whatever your first day of the week is, your brain is actually healthier and happier and ready to actually go kill it. All right. Uh, how do you feel about five-year goals? I hate five-year goals. <laughs> I so hate five-year goals. I mean, I think back five years uh, of who I was five years ago, and I would have played so small. Uh, I would have, you know, just not thought through the kind of friendships I want. I wouldn't have thought through of, you know, who I am as a keynote speaker or an author or a podcaster. Uh, I am a much bigger fan of six months to 12 month goals to say what's in front of me right now. Um, so, you know, in late 2018, um, I said, okay, I've got most things really automated. Now what's that next really big thing for me? If I can get a traditionally published book that becomes a New York Times bestseller, that's going to open a lot of doors for me in a way that other things wouldn't. And so the single focus for the last two years has been that, but it wasn't like two years. It was first, I need to get an agent and I need to get a top agent. And then what's the next goal? Well, I need to then work with a writing coach that's going to give me the best possible mm -hmm. shot at you know getting HarperCollins to buy this book. And then HarperCollins buys it. All right from April until September of 2020, I got to write this book. And so yep. even how I'm thinking about sprinting, when we look at our goals, when we have a five-year goal, we delay and delay and delay. Whereas if we look at it in six to 12 month increments, we then can really take a big bite out of our future. Okay. And then you write this in the book, quote, if companies like Microsoft see increased productivity during a four-day work week and don't permanently adopt that schedule, how do we even stand a chance? How do we? Yeah, I think um, a lot's come out even since I turned in my manuscript to see the Iceland study with 2,500 people uh, that had a four-day work week with productivity going up, uh, with their happiness and health outcomes going up. 
I'm seeing other countries continue to do it. Uh, Kickstarter 2022, they've announced they're switching. Um, I do think that what's different about our era compared to 1926 is that we do not have a centralized group of power. Sure, there's there's power and there's power brokers still. Like we're not going to pretend like there's not, but. Uh, we now have the ability as a humanity to say, we want to push back on what this looks like. And I think that the pandemic really helped us. But what, what's confusing is that you know Microsoft Japan, um, we reached out to them several times to try to figure out the backstory there. And if there's journalists out there that want to help us with it, we would love to know why you know Microsoft Japan saw such a boost in productivity with a four-day work week and then cut the program. Um, that to me is, is a question. Like, why do we just keep going back to what doesn't work? Um, and I would say, Right now, my best guess would be it's the grip of the industrialists. And as we continue to see that industrialist mindset dissipate, it's going to be a lot easier. We don't think of people as machines. We don't think of people as part of an assembly line. It's just not how we live in most areas of our life. But like you said at the beginning, so many of our school systems and businesses just go back to that default because they haven't thought through what's actually next and what could be next. Yeah, 100%. All right. Uh, Do you have a yes and story for us? Oh man, Kelly, uh, I sure do. So um, in uh, 2020, uh, my family went on the road. Uh, We left September of 2020 to live in the national parks uh, for a year. And and so we hit the road. Uh, I had my two daughters and uh, Christina, uh, my daughter's mom. And so we left as a family. Uh, We spent the winter in California. And in February of 2021, um, Christina started talking about how she wanted to, to leave the family. Uh, and for me, that was one of those moments that in the past I would have said, no, like we need more therapy. We need more of this. We need more of that. I, I had fought for years and years. And this is actually a story that I wasn't sure if I was going to be gutsy enough to tell, but I thought, you know, if anyone deserves it, uh, it's someone like you, Kelly. Okay. Um, and you know, watching that unfold, um, and for who I became during that time. So we lived in this camper together from February of 2021 until April of 2021. So months together as she's deciding whether or not she's going to leave this family. I mean, my own meditation practice grew. I mean, I was in such pain that just, I would wake up and for one second, you know, I would forget what my life had become and that, you know, I was potentially having a divorce and, you know, taking this camper back to Michigan without my wife. Um, and just the level of pain to get through the day, it was like, I had to meditate. I had, like, I found this whole formula that kind of worked temporarily for me where I was reading and journaling and then doing three minute blanks and going for walks. And it was this whole two hour routine. And then every night, um, you know, I'd have to like walk till two or three in the morning. Cause I was just so sad. Uh, it just like killed me. Uh, and then I'd go you know, fall asleep, just so tired and wake up at like five the next morning, uh, and just do it all over again mm-hmm. in the past. I would have said, no, I would have fought. I would have pushed back. Um, uh, and there are times to do that, but I said, yes. And to becoming a single dad into saying to my daughter's you know what? We, the three of us can be strong. Uh, you know, if mommy chooses to, to live in California, um, that's mommy's choice. Uh, and to work through that uh, has been such a difficult challenge. And I have become such a lighter person. I feel like uh, to be able to be raising these girls and to have glitter in my hair and to like, just have all these fun experiences that the three of us get to have. Uh, it's a story that's still unfolding for me, but for me, I've learned so much about how little we have control over our lives. You know, the, the things that we think that, uh, that we have any control over, uh, and to say, 
you know what, this is all unfolding. I never would have wanted it this way. I never would have chose this. And I can observe that most of my life is unfolding without my permission. And you know that which unfolds that isn't my permission, sure, I can, I can work on those things. But to be able to, as a high achieving kind of thinker, psychologist, step back and say, you know what? Like, I don't have control over traffic. I don't have control over weather. I don't have control over my ex's decisions. But what I do have control over is my actions in these areas, how I handle my emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's shifted me into such a different person um, than I ever could have become outside of having just such a grenade thrown into my life. One of our uh, frequent guests on the pod is Scott Barry Kaufman, who introduced me to the concept of post-traumatic growth. And I think this idea of, for those of us who've gone, undergone a, a kind of trauma, which I'd say that is, um, the, the ability to pivot and find joy in your life, if you can, if you can do that, you, you have un, unceasingly uh, amazing opportunities because you've realized that you're still standing. The worst thing happened to you, you're still standing. Um, yeah. and, and then, and then, and then there's still, there's still life to be lived. Um, yeah. so I think it's very, it's a brave thing to uh, share and, and people, people don't talk enough about these pains that I, everyone is going through. Everyone is going through this stuff. I, I, is just, I know it, I've heard it, I've seen it in my own life. And so when we can start to share those stories, we're really releasing the burden, not just for ourselves, but for other people. Yeah. Well, and even just to like exactly what you said, knowing, you know, your history with your daughter and, you know, when such a terrible thing has happened, um, it it then in some ways can become a superpower where the little things that would have just pissed you off in the past, you you can be, you can be like, what, what do you got on me? You're mad at me at the grocery store. Like you can't hurt me. Like what I was already through. Um, so it's like, if I get rejected by on a date by someone is like, what are you going to do? This person I thought that I was going to be married to forever decided to leave, like screw you. What are you going to do to me? And so it's really interesting to just watch it unfold and, and to say, I'm open to seeing how, um, this, this kind of manifests itself in my life in a, a way that is entirely my life. Thank you for sharing that. The book is called Thursday is the New Friday, How to Work Fewer Hours, Make More Money, and Spend Time Doing What You Want. Joe Sanek, thank you for coming on the pod. This has been amazing. Thank you so much, Kelly. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City, Second City Works, and WGN Radio. It's also produced by Elif Garris with help by Mike Farinacchio and Colleen Fahey. The music that you hear that intros and outros the program is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you want to get more information on The Second City, you can reach us at www.secondcityworks.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
once survived.